0: us, we're happy to have you and come back and be with us anytime you can be here. As Brother Jimmy mentioned in his comments, it's so good, it's great to have some of the folks back who have been out for a good long time, weeks, months, during the COVID pandemic and some of them were able to be back with us today and it's good to have each one of you back. It's great to see you. Miss Lori is one of them, and a while ago she said to me, she said, I've been listening, I've been listening to the services all the time, but it's not the same as being here. And that's exactly right. She's right. It's not. So it's good that you can be here today with us and be in the service with us. One day, there were three preachers outside talking to each other. And they were discussing the best positions for prayer. And there happened to be a, a lineman for the power company working on a power pole nearby. One of the preachers said, Kneeling is definitely the best and most effective position to be in for prayer. Another preacher disagreed, and he said, Well, I get the best results in prayer by simply sitting with my head bowed. The third preacher said, You're both wrong. You're both wrong. The most effective prayer position is, face down on the floor. Well, the lineman nearby couldn't help but hear their conversation and so he decided to inject his opinion. And the lineman said, excuse me, fellas, but the best praying I ever did was hanging upside down from a power pole. Now, The best position for effective prayer would be debatable. But what's not debatable is that prayer is important. And prayer can be powerful. And that's one of the great promises of God that gives us hope. Our prayers can have power. And that's our lesson subject for this morning. And that's a very important promise that leads us to victory in the spiritual battles that we face in life. This sermon today is the third In this series that I'm preaching on the theme of God's promises that can give us hope. If you remember the sermon from last month, we studied the topic, God promises we can defeat the enemy. And at the heart of that lesson was Ephesians chapter 6 and the spiritual armor that we need to be able to take our stand against Satan and defeat Satan, who is our enemy. That text in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God ends with this command in verse 18 of that chapter. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So why do we need to pray? Why do we need to pray? Well, because our prayers can have power. And why do our prayers have power? Because the Bible teaches that God hears and answers the prayers of His faithful people. That is one of God's great and precious promises to us. In Matthew 18 19 and 20, Jesus said, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. When we pray together in Jesus' name, heaven takes note. When we pray individually in Jesus' name, God the Father listens. And God not only listens, but our prayers can impact the actions of God. So today I've divided this sermon into two parts. In part one, we're going to look at and discuss what I'm calling today qualifiers, qualifiers that give our prayers power. And then in part two, we're going to look at a few Bible examples of God responding to the prayers of his faithful people. So, Part one today, let's look at six Bible, Biblical qualifiers that give our prayers power. And I hope you'll pay attention to these and take these seriously. Because as the title on the screen says, these are Biblical These are not just six things that I pulled out of thin air. And without all of these, without all of these, our prayers cannot and will not have power and impact the actions of God. In other words, God won't hear and answer our prayers without these qualifiers being present in our prayers. So let's look at them. Here's qualifier number one. Praying in Jesus' name. In John 14, verse 14, Jesus told his disciples, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, it's really important that we understand how the New Testament uses that phrase in Jesus' name. Because a great many people today, even maybe people in the church, may read that verse and believe that as long as you put the words in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer, then God is obligated to answer that prayer in a positive way. But just put in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer is not what the New Testament means when it says that prayers are to be offered in Jesus' name. The phrase in Jesus' name actually means that whatever is being said or done must be done by the authority of the authority of Jesus. And Colossians 3.17 makes that clear. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So that means that whatever actions are taken or words that are spoken should be in accord with Jesus' teachings and by his authority. Now, here's an illustration of what we're talking about. Imagine, imagine that a man bangs on your door in the middle of the night and he yells out, open this door in the name of the law. Now, should you open the door for that man? Well, that depends. If he is truly an officer of the law who has a warrant and he's been authorized by the government to enter your house, well, then you should. However, if he's just somebody passing by, somebody with an ulterior motive who just added the words in the name of the law to make his statement sound more forceful, more powerful, then you should not open the door. You see, the phrase in the name of the law only has power if the person is actually, person using it, is actually authorized by the government to perform the action. And in the same way, in the same way the phrase in Jesus' name or in the name of Jesus only has power if what is being prayed for is truly authorized by Jesus. For example, if somebody, if somebody prayed this prayer, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Even though I can't forgive others of their sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Would God comply with that request? Would God do that? Well, the answer is no because Jesus said in Matthew 6 that God will forgive only those people who are willing to forgive others. Simply adding the name of Jesus to actions or prayer requests that Jesus has not authorized does not qualify as doing something in Jesus' name as the New Testament teaches. Now, our prayers should always be prayed in Jesus' name. But we need to correctly understand and and apply the purpose and the meaning of that phrase in our prayers for our prayers to have power. Praying in Jesus' name. That's number one. All right, qualifier number two, praying according to God's will. In Matthew 6, when Jesus told his disciples how to pray, he said that they should include in their prayers the idea that God's will should be done. His prayer begins in Matthew 6, 9 through 10. Many of you probably know it from memory. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, here it is, your will be done. In 1 John 5, the apostle John said, now this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. You see, our prayer should be offered from a heart that is humble enough to accept God's will even if that means that the prayer request is denied. God will not grant prayer requests that attempt to violate or circumvent his ultimate will. For example, if somebody were to pray this prayer, God, please say, my mother... Even though she is not a Christian, and she refuses to repent of her sins, please let her be saved in heaven anyway. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, would God grant that request? Well, again, the answer is no, because to do that would violate his ultimate will, that salvation is only through Christ. Here's a good Bible example of why our prayers ought to be prayed according to God's will. During the last quarter, uh, the winter quarter, in one of the lessons that I happened to teach in the Sunday adult class, we studied about the Old Testament character of Joseph. And you know, there were many events in Joseph's life that may have seemed very unfair to him at the time. And no doubt, Joseph prayed many times to be freed from slavery or to be released from prison. But at the end of Joseph's life, at the end of his life, we see that God's will was to make him a great leader in Egypt and to save the Jewish nation through him. And Joseph realized that. He recognized that. And in Genesis 50, he said to his brothers who had sold him into Egypt, he said to them, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. You see, Joseph's slavery and imprisonment were the means by which Jesus, by which God brought Joseph to power, accomplishing his will. For our prayers to have power, they should be prayed according to God's will. Qualifier number three, believing you will receive. If our prayers are to have power, then the person praying must honestly believe that God can and will grant the prayer if it is according to his will. In Matthew 21, 22, Jesus said, and whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now, real important, that verse does not mean that believing is the only requirement for having a prayer answered. That's a mistaken belief that many, many people today have. The two qualifiers that we've already mentioned and also the next three are necessary as well. But this verse and others teach us that belief is a necessary part of our prayers having power. In James 1, 6 and 7, James said, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For our prayers to have power, they must be prayed in believing faith. Qualifier number four. Prayers from a righteous person. From the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. The Bible writers stress that that sinful, rebellious people should not expect God to answer their prayers in a positive way. Only penitent, obedient followers of Christ are promised God's listening ear and his active hand in their lives. James 5.16 says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. 1 Peter 3, verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The blind man that Jesus healed in John chapter 9 Summarized this idea well when he said, "Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does His will, He hears hell. Proverbs fifteen twenty nine says, "The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayers of the righteous." Now, a great, great many people today may feel like they're righteous. But they have not obeyed God's will. And so they are not in a right relationship with God. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The Bible clearly and plainly teaches that those who are not faithfully following God are not promised an answer to their prayers. So their prayers cannot and do not have power. Wallflower number five. Praying without selfish motives. You know, one of the important biblical ideas about prayer centers on the reason, the reason that a person is making a prayer request. Example. Suppose that a person prays to God that that God will give him $20,000 every year For the rest of his life so that he can take a yearly world cruise and spend that money only on himself to gratify his physical pleasures. And even if he adds the phrase, in Jesus' name, at the end of it, and even if he honestly believes that God is going to answer that prayer. Is God obligated to comply with that request? The answer, again, is a no. If somebody is making a prayer request out of selfish, impure motives, then he or she cannot expect God to grant the request. James 4 verse 3 says you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. In Acts 8, Simon's request for the power to impart the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that request was denied, not only because it violated the will of God, but also because it apparently was made out of purely selfish motives. In the Sermon on the Mail, in Matthew 6, Jesus described the showy prayers of the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees. And he said in verse 5, For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. In Matthew 23, almost all of that chapter is devoted to Jesus pronouncing woe on the scribes and the Pharisees. And in verse 14, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. You see, those long show-off prayers designed mainly to impress others canceled out any power they might have. And you know the very same thing is true today in our public assemblies of the church. I dare say that that we've all heard prayers prayed at some time in services of the church that were mainly prayed in a way to impress others, with the eloquence and the knowledge of the person doing the praying. Selfish motives and ambitions cancel out the power of our prayers. And those who lead in public prayer in the church need to keep that in mind. Qualifier number six praying with persistence. The persistence of a petition in prayer is another factor that the Bible indicates has an effect on the power of our prayers. In the text that Wayne read in Luke 18, verse 1 says. Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then the parable that Jesus went on and told in that passage was about a widow who made a request to an unjust judge. And her request was noble and right. But the unjust judge did not feel obligated to grant her request. But because of her persistence and her continual coming to the judge, he finally granted her petition. In Luke 11, Jesus also told a parable about a man who went to his neighbor at midnight. Ask him for three loaves of bread to feed a traveling guest. At first the neighbor refused the request. But eventually he agreed to it. In verse 8 of that chapter Jesus said, I say to you though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Throughout the Bible, persistence plays an important part in the power of prayer. How often today do we pray, and when the prayer isn't answered as quickly as we think it should be, what do we do? We may just give up and lose heart, as Luke 18.1 says. But let's be persistent in our prayers. So, in summary, for our prayers to have power, they must be, number one, prayed in Jesus' name or by his authority. Number two, prayed according to God's will. Number three, Prayed in faith, believing faith. Number four, prayed by a righteous person. Number five, prayed without selfish motives. And number six, prayed with persistence. So, that brings us now to part two. We're going to look at some biblical examples today of the power of. A prayer. And you know the Bible is chock full of examples of God responding to the prayers of his faithful people. We could spend a long time going through these, but we're just going to look at a few of them briefly today. <clears throat> For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we read about Hannah Hannah had been unable to have children. And for a long time, Hannah had prayed earnestly and persistently for a son that she could devote to the Lord. And we find in that chapter that God granted her request. That son was Samuel. In 2 Kings chapter 20, we have the account of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the king of Judah. And he prayed to God after being told that he was going to die. And God heard his prayer. And he added 15 years to his life. In verses 5 and 6 of that chapter, the prophet Isaiah said... Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days 15 years. It's also interesting there to notice that in this account, Hezekiah's sickness was healed not in a spectacular, miraculous way, but he was healed through natural means. Isaiah instructed the king's attendants to put a poultice of figs on a boil that Hezekiah had that evidently was infected. And when they did that, then Hezekiah recovered. So that account gives us a good example of a person who prayed according to God's will and God worked through natural means to accomplish his purpose. Without Hezekiah's prayer, he would have died of his sickness. But because of his prayer, God intervened and allowed Hezekiah to live. In Nehemiah chapter 1, the prophet Nehemiah prayed about the devastated city of Jerusalem. And we find that God then used him, used Nehemiah, to lead the people in rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Most of us are familiar, even the kids, with the account of Jonah, the preacher. After disobeying God by refusing to go preach to the people of Nineveh, Jonah found himself himself inside the belly of a great fish. But he prayed to God, even from that place of great predicament, and God rescued him. God saved him. And Jonah then went on to accomplish God's mission. Those Bible people that we've mentioned are all great examples of the fact that our prayers can have power. But one of the greatest examples of prayer power is the example of Elijah the prophet. You know, when James wrote his letter to the church, and he wanted to teach about and emphasize the importance of prayer and the power of prayer as we're doing today, James used Elijah as an example. In James chapter 5, he wrote this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah lived eight centuries before the birth of Jesus, and he prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel had 20 different kings, And all of them, all of them were evil. But the worst of them all was King Ahab. 1 Kings 21-25 gives us this sad commentary on Ahab's life. That verse says, But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel his wife stirred him up. This was as dark a time as we ever read about in the history of the nation of Israel. And against the the background of that dark and evil time with those evil kings came the bright light of Elijah the prophet. The name Elijah means God, my God is Jehovah. And Elijah lived up to his name. So Elijah went to King Ahab and he gave him this this unpleasant weather forecast. As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. So how long was there no rain on the land of the northern kingdom of Israel? We already read the answer. Three and a half years. So how could Elijah have been so so sure, so confident of the impending drought that he predicted? Well, because he had prayed. Because he had prayed. Elijah's weather forecast had a spiritual purpose. King Ahab had led the people of Israel into the worship of the pagan god Baal. Baal was the fertility god that they looked to for rain and fertile fields. So for three and a half years, the idolatrous people of Israel prayed to the god of Baal for rain and crops, but they got neither one. So all the drought and the famine caused them great suffering and he made Ahab really angry at Elijah, who God had sent off into hiding. So after the three and a half years was up, God told Elijah to go present himself to Ahab because God was going to send rain. And Elijah went. And he challenged the prophets of Baal to a contest to see whose God was the true God. 1 Kings 18 says, So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him but the people answered him not a word. And what happened next in that account is one of the great accounts of the Bible. It's actually one of my favorites. I was able to visit the location of this contest on Mount Carmel on our Holy Land trip. That was a great experience. And as you can see there in the picture, there would be plenty of space there on the mountainside for a large number many, many Israelites to assemble together to watch this great showdown, this contest. So Elijah proposed this showdown to the 450 prophets of Baal. Therefore, let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So the prophets of Baal agreed to that. And they went first. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. Now, Elijah, Elijah had a good sense of humor. But he would have flunked out on political correctness. Chapter 18, verse 27 says And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. Even though the prophets of Baal cut themselves and they ranted and raved all afternoon, nothing happened. Nothing happened. There was no answer from their God because their God was nothing. So finally at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah asked for his turn. So after building his altar and digging a trench all the way around it, arranging the wood, placing a a bull on it. Elijah did a very unusual thing. He ordered them to pour water over his sacrifice and the altar. Now, remember that this was during a time of great drought. And yet he had them to find water and fill four water pots, which were likely barrels, and pour it on the altar, and he had them do that three times. So the altar and the wood were totally soaked, and the water filled up that trench he had dug. So why did Elijah have them pour so much water over the altar and the wood? Well, he wanted everyone to know without a, without a doubt that this was the power of God at work. He didn't want anybody thinking that he had done some kind of trick and lit the fire without them noticing. So Elijah approached the altar and he said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And notice how quickly God answered Elijah's prayer. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. You see, God delighted in hearing and answering Elijah's prayer. And in this case, God answered Elijah's prayer in a a spectacular way. And not only did God send fire from heaven to prove that he was the one true God, God also sent rain. Elijah ordered that the prophets of Baal be seized and executed. And he told Ahab, go up, eat, and drink but there is the sound of the abundance of rain. Verse 45 says, Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. It hadn't rained for three and a half years because of Elijah's prayer. And now it was raining because of Elijah's prayer. Now, let's go back to James' commentary on this account from his letter to the church in James chapter 5. James writes, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. You see, James was impressed that a prayer of such power came from a man so common. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. His point is that Elijah just like we are, just a human being. We human beings can walk in righteousness and faith just like Elijah did, and we can have power in our prayers. So God delighted in hearing and answering Elijah's prayer just like God delights in hearing and answering our prayers today. When we, as faithful, righteous people, pray in Jesus' name or by His authority, according to God's will, believing that we will receive without selfish motives and with persistence, then our prayers will have power. God's people should never be without hope because we always have the avenue of prayer. Somebody once said the only place that power comes before prayer is in the dictionary. Too often we may try everything else before we try prayer. You know, prayer should be our first mode of operation, our first response, not our last. And Satan, Satan knows there is power in prayer, and that's why Satan wants to keep us from praying. Well, let's be people who are active in prayer, who know from experience that our prayers and the prayers of others can have power. And there are some of us who do know that from first hand experience. Our prayers can have power. That's one of God's great and precious promises. So let's keep on praying. during my four years at Lipscomb, I was privileged to be able to study the Bible under some of the great Bible scholars and gospel preachers of that time. One of those good men was Brother Basil Barrett Baxter. He served as the minister of the Hillsborough congregation in Nashville. For many years, as well as teaching Bible at Lipscomb, writing books, he spoke on the Herald of Truth radio and TV programs for a long time. And today I want to close the sermon with a quote from one of his sermons on prayer. This is how he ended that sermon. He says, in order for our prayers to have power and be heard, it is imperative that we be God's children. In all of the New Testament, there is no promise that the various requests of a man who is a non-Christian will be heard. This is logical, I think. The man who has turned his back upon God and goes in some other direction has no real right to expect his petitions to be heard. Rather it is the man who has turned toward God, accepting him as father and becoming part of his family who has the right to ask of God. God's love reaches out to all men and his blessings are available to all as they are willing to become part of his family. It is to God, our Father, that we pray, and from Him that we receive the blessings which are so necessary in our lives. If you're not a child of God today, a member of His family, the church, and Christ invites you today to accept His invitation. Believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, turning away from your sins in repentance, confessing the name of Christ and making him the Lord of your life, being immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins, and then living a new and faithful life in Christ. And then, and only then, Can your prayers have power? The lesson is yours today. If you need to respond to the invitation of Christ today in any way, we invite you to come as together we stand and sing.